Welcome to the third episode of It's Been Hard Lately. When this episode was recorded, the Victorian government in a media release stated that at the current time, 4,267 cases may indicate community transmission. 743 cases are currently active in Victoria. 94 cases of coronavirus are in hospital, including eight in intensive care. And at the time, nearly 18,000 people had recovered from the coronavirus. I spoke with Michael Gwenda. Michael is an established journalist and the former editor-in-chief of The Age newspaper from 1997 to 2004. He's also a grandfather, a brother, and personally to me, he's a friend and a mentor. In this episode, we discuss not only the personal impacts of the lockdown, but how the pandemic has exposed the lack of unbiased reporting in current journalism practices and the consequences of that for all levels of society. I hope you enjoy this episode. I wanted to start by asking what was life like before COVID-19 for you and after it occurred? Well, uh, you know, trying to remember what life was like before COVID is sort of difficult for me it feels like um it feels like it was years and years ago um or in another lifetime almost um but you know when i when i try to focus on think back i uh, i think um uh, i was in the process of write, finishing writing a book um uh, it, it, which had taken up you know a fair bit of my time i've been working on this book for a couple of years, it involved a lot of interviews, it involved a lot of traveling around to meet people. Um, uh, and uh, that took up a lot of my time. It was almost like, well, you know what writing's like. It was kind of like a full-time occupation. Um, uh, so that's where my life was at. Uh, I had finished full-time work a long time ago. Uh, I had kept writing in different ways. Uh, I'd written some poetry, I'd done some other things, but in the immediate couple of years before COVID, I was focused on this book. Um, I was very involved with my, with my family, especially I had a grandson who was a little boy. Uh, it was our first grandchild. I was besotted with him uh, uh, and wanted very much to be part of his life. So I spent a lot of time with him. Um, uh, as you know, Nyadol, I regularly saw friends, uh, went out for lunch uh, uh, or coffee. Um, so, you know, as I'm speaking about this, I think, gee, that was a life, that was a completely different life than I have lived uh, in the last six months. So, so that's where I was, um, and that vanished virtually uh, with, um, with the onset of the pandemic. What has been the, the hardest bit to, to deal with? The hardest thing to deal with is the lack of the ability to be able to be in constant contact with, uh, in a physical sense, with my family and with close friends. Uh, uh, that, that, has been, that has been the hardest thing for me to adjust to. Um, yes, there's Zoom and there's, uh, you know, uh, uh, 
connections via, you know, uh, uh, the internet and, but it's not the same. It's not, um, it's actually, you know, I wrote a piece recently about this. It's kind of a disembodied connection because not all your senses are involved. Uh, you can't out touch in the people. You can't smell the people. You can't actually hear them in the roar. So you're getting this kind of um, weird uh, uh, internet view of, of um, people who you realize your connections were very much about being with them. It wasn't just thinking about them. It was yes. about actually being with them. So I think that's been the hardest adjustment. Uh, and it's, for me, it's been particularly hard in two, in two instances, in two ways. One, one that I, I haven't been able to see my grandson the way I would have wanted to see him. And he doesn't accept that. He doesn't understand that. Uh, um, I, I can feel like no matter what I do or say, he feels it as a rejection. Uh, um, you know, for various reasons, in the first year and a half of his life, he lived with us. He lived with us. His, my, my daughter and her partner and him lived in the same house as us. Um, so I, I kind of, he was raised with us. This was his home. So suddenly his home was no longer open to him. He couldn't come here. Um, so now we're at the stage where we can see him outside, but all he asks is, when can I come inside? When, when, and that's a question about when do I reclaim my home? When do I, when, when do I get that back? So that's been particularly hard. The other thing at my age that has been an age matters here, hard for me, is that I have a, a, a 91 year old sister. She is almost two decades older than me. She's not well, she had a fall. I haven't been able to see her. And every day I think, am I going to be in a situation where my sister is going to be seriously ill, uh, might even die and I won't see her. I won't be able to see her. So every day I make this calculation. I know we're not meant to go and visit people more than 5K away, but uh, every day I make this calculation you know, I speak to her, I, I try to get a sense of how she's feeling uh, and I don't go, but but I feel terrible when I don't. I feel, what if this afternoon? I, so they're the two things that most obsess me. So that that's that's particularly, that's these are the hard things. All, all the other things, uh, uh, the societal things, uh, the worries I've got about how this is impacting younger people in general, uh, um, how how it is how how it is increasing inequality in our in our community, which was already at a at a fairly a fairly troubling uh, uh, situation. Uh, those things worry me too. Every day I worry about those things that they've become kind of personal. They're, they're not just general questions for me. And I think they've become personal because at my age, I won't see that future probably, uh, but I worry about it. Uh, um, 
um, I don't. I guess I don't want to. I don't want to end my life being pessimistic about what the future holds. And I think that's a that's a really it's a good connection to one of the one of the questions I was going to ask because you you've you've been a journalist, you know, for a long time, and you've covered stories and a lot of crisis around the world. How does this differ to some of the ones you've um, you've covered before? Well, it's true that I I, I have uh, I've been a journalist uh, probably twice as long as you've been alive, almost not at all. Uh, uh, and uh, I have seen a lot of things, and I have seen a lot of I've seen a lot of terrible things, um, and they've been challenging. Um, but I don't, I don't think there was in anything that I've covered, um, and that includes civil unrest and riots and even wars, uh, I, don't think, I don't think I ever lost a certain kind of optimism or belief that the future can be, can be better than the present. Um, I, I, um, I always thought that, I always felt like part of my job as a journalist was to show people the way the world is and believe that in the showing of the way the world is, people can be energised to make things better. Um, uh, I, think, I think I always believed that. Uh, um, Otherwise, I don't think I could have done that job. I, I think it would have overwhelmed me to do that job. Um, you know, in, in different situations, I saw the way people's lives were destroyed by war. Uh, I saw the way people's lives, uh, um, who were powerless to decide things about the society in which they were living, the way their lives were blighted by being poor, uh, uh, by being mentally not well, uh, by racism. But I always believed that if I could describe these things, uh, uh, not, not objectively, but honestly, um, uh, uh, if I could do that, perhaps I can have some small role in making people see that this, it doesn't have to be like this, uh, that these things can be changed. So that's how I lived most of my, my life as a journalist. I am, this pandemic has, has made me doubt, to a certain extent, it's made me doubt the future. Um, and it, 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 not my future, uh, but the future that is going to confront you and your children and my children and their children. Um, and the reasons is because it came together with, for me, a sense that the world is not going to, the international community, our country in particular, the USA certainly is not going to confront 
the existential threat that is climate change. It's not going to do that. Um, and so I was already pessimistic. I was already thinking that, I hope I'm wrong about this, but I can't see the signs that, that this is going to be confronted in time to actually mitigate some of the things that are already happening. And then the pandemic struck. And what the pandemic immediately revealed to me, almost from day one, was the poor quality of leadership uh, uh, around the world, everywhere, um, that the world just did not have anywhere that I could see apart from one or two small countries like New Zealand, for instance, uh, and, and probably countries that I don't know much about, but, but that seem to me to still have a functioning, uh, uh, a functioning political system that was based on facts and not on fantasies. So I think that from the start, and I think this is particularly true about the United States, which in some ways saw itself and we saw as a kind of world-leading country, both in terms of democracy, in terms of its technological and scientific know-how, um, that would lead the world in, in a pandemic like this. The opposite has proved to be true right from the start. So... I, I, um, I'm battling uh, uh, to, I would find it very hard to be a journalist right now, um, I think. And I think we, we, we should understand that the journalists that are trying to cover uh, uh, our country or the US or where, they are facing huge issues um, of, issues of making sure they don't, they don't get sick issues of whether people are telling them the truth, uh, um, issues of what is fact and what is fiction, how do we uh, interrogate politicians like Trump. Uh, uh, so I think there are huge issues facing journalists. And to be able to do the job, like I was saying before, you have to, you have to believe your job will make a difference. You have to believe, you know, good journalists believe that if they can only show people, if they can only, not just show, but if they can answer the questions that most people have about any particular issue honestly and as straightforwardly as they can, they will make a difference. You've got it. Now, I'm not sure, I mean, I'm not sure whether it's possible to do that in the current environment. I mean, if you look at what is happening with US journalism, with, with the kind of mainstream journalism, it has fractured into, into different mediums, different media for different groups who believe different things. So that each, each segment of the media talks to people who are already convinced of certain things that they're just going to reinforce. That's what Fox News does. Uh, um, that's what the Murdoch papers do in Australia. Uh, that's, to a certain extent, what the New York Times does. I mean, it speaks to a particular audience. It's probably less ideological, a bit less ideological than some of the others, but there is nowhere where you can go where you, where you feel that 
this is journalism that is not tainted by ideology. Uh, um, and, and I think that makes it very difficult for people like you and me and others to get a handle of what's going on in our world. Uh, and the world has shrunk for us. We now live our lives, don't we, uh, in our neighbourhood, uh, uh, restricted to our neighbourhood. We have a rule we can't travel five kilometres outside of our neighbourhood. So we rely more, more and more on, uh, on journalism to tell us what's going on in the world beyond our village, beyond our immediate environment. And I'm not sure that it's possible anymore to trust what we're being told. Um, and, and I think that's, that's a terrible state of affairs. I agree. I think that when you look at the way everything now seems to have an ideological leaning or people assume that it, it has to have an ideological leaning, it's one of the reasons why we haven't seen any real action or commitment to address climate change because there are groups out there that seems to suggest that this is not a scientific fact, that it is, a, that it is more you know, a political opinion. Um, pushed by leftist or, you know, social justice warriors. And that preceded COVID-19. And in places like the United States, you see the same attitude impact how people are talking about, you know, something that should be a scientific fact and follow a scientific recommendation. And so the word of Donald Trump by his supporters have more weight than the opinion of Dr. Fauci because it's seen as if both of them come from different ideological um, spaces. And that kind of, that kind of environment, I think I, I agree with you that it creates, it creates a level of pessimism because you can't be really optimistic if you don't have facts that, are, that you believe to be honest so that you can make a call you know, about what the future can look like. And, and now it's just a really really sad environment. I, I am, as, as you, quite concerned about climate change. And I think one of the reasons why I found this pandemic a bit worrying is that I think if people can get to a point where they say, well, there are people that, are, that we, we have to offer up, whether they're old or they're so, I, I think that that kind of thinking might equally be why we haven't do anything, done anything on climate change. Some people think that Whoever, whoever survives, survives, and whoever kind of dies, you know, dies. So I think that COVID-19, even though it's new, it's just exposing a lot of failures that were already existing. And do you, do you kind of think of what ways we can push back against this? I mean, the media was a big part of it, but the media seemed to have become a part of a battleground now. Well, I think, I think you're absolutely right. I think that, I think that climate change, uh, that... Um, COVID-19, the pandemic uh, uh, exacerbated and revealed things that were already true uh, uh, about, about the state of the world and the way issues were being dealt with. I mean, there's no doubt, you're right, climate change is going to have the biggest impact on the poorer countries, uh, poorer communities within the more wealthy countries. That's already happening. I think, and, and the pandemic has shown that, uh, uh, has shown that the biggest impact of the pandemic is on people who are poor, um, uh, on the homeless, on the 
on the mentally ill, on the people who who live in um, who live in conditions where, for instance, the, the idea of isolating is impossible. Uh, uh, so yes, I think that's true. One of the things that I I have I have wondered about. I, I, this is a bit of a side issue, but today I read an obituary of a New York Times reporter who was in his mid fifties. I've never heard of him, uh, tell you the truth, but the, he was an old fashioned reporter. What he did was walk the streets of New York and tell the stories of people that he met. Um, uh, uh, no, that's not all he did, but the main thing he did was tell the stories of people who were less privileged than most of his readers, that had issues that they didn't have to deal with. He made those issues come alive. He was, in, in my view, the, in the best sense, a reporter. He went out and brought back stories uh, about the life of the city in which he was living. We don't get enough of that. You see, we, what we have more and more in the media is commentary. Well, uh, uh, people putting their opinions, right? Often those opinions are not based on facts. They're not based on agreed facts anyway. And so we get this conflict of opinions. You say this, I say that. Climate change is terrible. No, it isn't. We shouldn't lock down. Yes, we should. But what we don't have is good reporting. What we don't have, because, and why don't we have it? We don't have it because good reporting is expensive and media can't afford to do it. Opinion is cheap, right? Opinion is cheap. I, I think the greatest, the greatest thing that journalism could do for us now, here and in America, um, everywhere, everywhere, is go out and tell the stories of people at a time like this. I mean, in a way, that's what you're doing. You're doing that. You are talking to individual people about how this, how this pandemic is impacting their lives. Now, I, I don't see that in the media. I don't see that much in the mainstream media. If I do see it, it's very occasional and it's once over likely it's not done properly. Uh, so I wish they were doing more of that. I wish we were talk, telling more people's stories. I wish there was less debate. I think that uh, I, I think there were. Uh, I think that that would be a great thing. Um, maybe if we did more of that. See, we've got to find a way. We've got to find a way of having at least some agreed facts. Um, if, if there's no agreed facts. It, What's the point of, there's no conversation that you can have. There's no debate you can have. Um, you know, you, you end up with what you saw with Biden and, uh, and Trump. You know, people just screaming at each other. So, it has been um, an interesting conversation because as much as I wanted to talk about how I think COVID has impact individuals, this conversation has been interesting on how COVID has impacted truth-telling in a way, you know, how it has exposed the lack of truth-telling and what that really means for a society to function at all levels. Because it's not just truth-telling 
for democratic purposes is what we saw in the debate. It's also truth telling so that we know what to do in our personal life. Should I be going out? Who should I be listening to? What are the, you know, the facts about controlling this, 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 this virus? And all that is debatable. And I agree that there is, there, there was a conversation happening on, online recently about journalism and, um, and the attack on journalists online. And, uh, but some of that attack was coming because people believe that certain journalists were very ideologically driven. That, at least that was the accusation. And so I think the people didn't feel that they could then give them the benefit of the doubt that they were just doing their job. They saw them as political operative at the worst. And that, I, I feel that because journalism in Australia and across other places as now, sometimes you can't distinguish because the same paper will do this, will do this between what is just journalistic reporting and what is opinion writing, you know, because some opinion writers are journalists and it begins to dilute that space. And we then wonder to what degree should we still treat journalism with the respect it had, you know, years back when it was seen almost as closer to objective reporting than this opinion telling that we see. And this debate was happening online and a lot of the journalists were taking the side, of course, of the journalists, which was understandable because they understand the, the pressures of that space. But what I felt like they didn't understand was that there was a sort of failing on the side of journalists' ability to convince people that they're doing their job. Does that make sense? You know. Yes, of course. I mean, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, the, the reaction, the reaction of journalists to surveys and uh, that clearly show that people don't believe journalists uh, uh, or have doubts about their objectivity or their fairness, uh, or, or uh, journalists can't just dismiss that out of hand. I mean, we need journalists. We need to examine each ourselves. We need to examine each other. We need to talk about why do people feel this way? What, what is it that we're doing? Now, see, I think one of the main reasons people feel this way is because journalism has become a difficult occupation. It's become a di difficult occupation for many reasons, but one of the main reasons is that the model that supported journalism before, the commercial model uh, of advertising and sales, and that model has been destroyed, which means that media companies find it very difficult to fund journalism, uh, um, and especially expensive journalism. Uh, so journalists are up against the fact that they, they, they are forced to write 15 stories a day instead of one or two. Uh, they are forced to uh, post things on websites, on news websites that they haven't checked thoroughly because they're in competition with others. Uh, they haven't got time to actually go out and do the sort of journalism that I'm talking about. Uh, look, you know, when I was an editor, no reporter, no reporter who was out there reporting the news was allowed to write opinion because I always thought if they wrote opinion, it would taint their reporting. Uh, people would look at their reporting and think, oh, well, you know, this is ideologically driven. This guy's, this guy's a supporter of, of whatever. 
or this woman, you know? I mean, there were certain journalists that were exempt. They didn't write opinion so much as analysis, like Michelle Grattan and others that had been long-time political reporters. But in the main, reporters did reporting. That's what I, that's what I wanted them to do. Report, report accurately, fairly. Objectivity is not attainable, but fairness is, is obtainable. Uh, um, so, and that's, there's no longer time for this. You know, to get, to, to make that, just a little thing I'll tell you, to make, be able to make that rule meant that we had to pay for opinion, right? We had to pay columnists. They, they weren't on the paper. They were people that, because of their expertise, because they had uh, a standing in a particular area, we wanted them to write commentary. We had to pay them. Nowadays, most of these papers don't, don't want to pay for commentary or they can't afford to. So they get it from wherever they can and often it's from reporters on the paper. So I, I think journalists really, they're up against it, but they've got to be clear about the challenges that they face. They've got to be clear about the fact that people want from them what they're not delivering at the moment. And they've got to be able to, with their media, within their media companies, demand that some of those issues be addressed. There's no other way, there's no other way to go here uh, except down that rabbit hole where people aren't going to believe anything that journalists write. I mean, I already, for instance, and, and I'd imagine there'd be lots of other people, I, I can't believe anything, and I'm including the reporting that you see on Fox News. I just, I just think, I'm not talking about the commentary. I'm talking when they report an event. Uh, I, I, I think I can't trust this report. Uh, uh, the people who are reporting this have got an agenda uh, and their agenda is either to boost Trump or pull down Biden or, or deny the fact that the virus is dangerous. I mean, so that's where you end up. They're an extreme example of that. You know, I, I feel that a bit about all media at the moment. I want to interrogate where are they coming from? Why are they, why are they reporting this in this way? Now, if, if we continue, uh, I mean, I hope all people are doing that. Otherwise, they're just going to be sucked in by whatever they read or see, including on social media, and then you're lost. Then you are lost. You're in a world of, of competing facts, uh, uh, which are really competing fantasies. Uh, and... Um, and I don't see how you can live your life that way. And I'm not talking just politically. You said, the, you said it before. How do you make decisions about what is safe and what is not safe? Uh, um, how do you make fundamental decisions like, should I send my kids to school or, or, or shouldn't I send my kids to school? What are the risks I'm taking with them for exactly. them to defend them yeah. school? And I mean, in the United States, you, you, you did see that someone like Trump was telling people to, take, to send their kids to school back to school and to open up and you think and and you know and fox news were, were pushing for that and other aspects of and but you thought how how, how do i trust this like how yeah. and and even him talking about vaccine now already 50 percent of pe people in the united states 
said they will not take the vaccine, even if it was, it was produced. So you can see the huge effect of the lack of having that agreed facts that it's having on all levels of society and how we live our lives. And it's really scary because unless we do have those, those agreed facts, the big issue that we face as the world, whether it's climate change, none of these things can happen without, we, without a conversation about agreed facts. It's really frightening. Close the, this off. I just wanted to bring it to just any personal reflections that you have about COVID-19, um, about the world. I mean, you have a grandkid. Then you have to be somehow hopeful. Yes, I do, and and you know, I I um, I, I I hope I, I didn't convey some sense of overwhelming despair. That's not what I've got. I I, I um, you know, I, I am naturally someone that uh, um, is 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 optimistic, not not stupidly optimistic but can rationally say, well, here are the reasons why I think we can be optimistic. Uh, so let me give you a couple just personal things. Um, I, I, I think that in my own community, and I'm talking about Australia, and I'm talking about Melbourne, and I'm talking about, you know, from a small to larger to larger, I think I have been impressed by the way people have dealt with this pandemic. Uh, I think in the main Australians, certainly people that are in Melbourne have been responsible, have done the right thing, uh, um, have, uh, have sacrificed for what they thought was the common good. And I think that's, that, that's something to be pleased about and optimistic about. Um, in my own life, uh, um, in my own personal life, I think that I've had time to reflect on, on what's important and what isn't important. Uh, uh, and, and that's been a very important uh, and interesting process for me. Um, I think, you know, we started off Nidal talking uh, about, you know, that when the that piece I wrote about the when the pandemic first started it made me feel old and understand what it meant to be old. I think that's true now, uh, even, but in a different way. Um, uh, um, what it has made me feel is that life is precious, that every day is precious, um, that I have to, that I have to not let the risks of catching this overwhelm my need to live, right? Uh, and that's why every day I make that calculation about my sister and I will eventually, you know, make a calculation that I have to see her. I do think you have to make a calculation every day that I'm not going to let it destroy my ability to live. Uh, um, to have experience, uh, to love the people that I love, express that love for them, uh, find ways of being with them, uh, um, be interested in the world, which has always been one of the things for me. So I do think I, I have, I wake up each day and I do think 
Well, you know, life is precious uh, and you have to live it. And living it means living it in a good way. Uh, and so every day I try to work out what those good ways are. Thank you for listening. It's Been Hard Lately is created by Nidal Nguyen and produced by me, Imogen Wait. Original music by Zoe Elsop. If you liked this episode, please subscribe and leave us a comment and rating. You can say hello to us on Instagram at It's Been Hard Lately.